Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. So we finally got out of chapter 6, but what a uh, meaty, rich chapter it was. Uh, Jesus covering so many things. There is uh, with the Beatitudes and what some call the Sermon on the Plain. But now we enter the seventh chapter, and I'm going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 17. We're going to look at two different stories here this morning. And so if your Bibles are open, Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. One of our ushers will be glad to bring you one. If you don't have one, and you can even keep it. It's, uh, it's okay. We, we like that uh, people that don't have a Bible can have God's word. But let's start with verse 1, Luke chapter 7. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. And he came near the gate of the city, and behold, a dead man was carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and when those who carried him stood, and those who carried him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So when he, he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother, then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding area. Father, we ask for the ministry of your spirit uh, to each and every heart and mind, bless your word. May it be magnified and glorified here this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Two desperate situations. Wouldn't you agree? And would you not agree that these are two desperate situations? One man's extremely sick, very close to death. Another man, as Luke records here, a young man, he's already dead. There are a number of people directly affected, those that are upset, 
that are anxious over these seemingly hopeless conditions. But among the friends and the relatives and neighbors are the two hearts that are grieving the most. You know, in any situation, there's someone grieving more than everybody else. There's always someone closer to the problem, closer to the issue, closer to the person. One man, he's a Roman centurion, and he's troubled deeply by the suffering and the inevitable death of his faithful and loyal servant. A servant who seems to be more friend than servant. And there's a woman, a woman of Nain, a town 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. It says in the text it takes place the next day. So these things happen in consecutive days. Now she's already a widow, and she's distraught at the death of her only son. She is destined at this point, historically speaking, to a life of poverty and misery. She has no one to take care of her now their son is gone aside from whatever the community is willing to do. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word, Lord of the Impossible. Lord of the Impossible. We'll look at three things from the text this morning. Convinced, commended, and compassion. Convinced, commended, and compassion. Let's look first at this centurion. A Roman centurion, he was an officer in the army of Rome. Anyone that carried the title centurion, just think officer in the Roman army. They were highly respected men, highly respected men that rose to their position of rank due to, unequivocally this had to be the case, they had to have shown great bravery in battles. You didn't rise to the top of this rank unless you had proven it, that you were a man among men when it came to warrior. They had to prove it on the battlefield. They had to show great feats of bravery and courage, and it had to be noticed across the board by many. But of course, the higher ranking had to bestow this rank upon them. They had to show leadership qualities. They had to show efficiency uh, even before they were ever centurion, they had to show efficiency in military command, in, in military campaigns. They were the best of the best, and they had proven it over time. Pluvius Flavius Vegetius Renatus, I know that's quite a name. He was a writer during the late Roman Empire, and he wrote this of centurions. He said, the centurion in the infantry is chosen for his size, his strength, and dexterity in throwing his missile weapons and for his skill and the use of his sword and shield. In short, for his expertness in all exercises. He is to be vigilant, temperate, active, and readier to execute the orders he receives rather than talk. These were not men of talk. Strict in exercising and keeping up proper discipline among his soldiers in obliging them to appear clean, well-dressed, and to have their arms constantly rubbed and bright. In other words, their weapons had to be ready at all time for battle. The Roman centurions, they actually were not commanders that would actually 
be sitting in the rear giving. They actually were up front. They would lead by example. The men looked up to them. A centurion had to be at least 30 years of age. So we know this man was over the age of 30. Had to be at least 30 years of age. They had, they're required to be literate. Many of the soldiers were not literate. But to be a centurion, you had to be able to read and write. They had to be literate. The title of centurion means captain of a hundred. And it came with the responsibility of commanding 80 to 100 trained legionnaires. The legionnaires were the common name for all the Roman soldiers. Now, a senior centurion commanded a cohort, or six full, six full centuries, six groups of 80 to 100. So a senior centurion, right? You have the name manager or senior manager, executive, senior executive. A senior centurion would command six centuries, totaling 480 to 600 men. A supreme centurion, a supreme centurion oversaw the first cohort, also called the first spear. And the first spear, which was twice the size of all the other cohorts, that numbered 960 to 1,200 men. So this would be if you were a supreme centurion. The centurions, they wore a special transvest uh, crest on their helmets. Many of you have probably seen the Roman helmets. You know how it has the feather crest that goes like this? They're red, right? You've seen those? But not the centurion. Their crest went this way. It went east-west rather than north-south. So it went this way. And the reason was, many of the reasons, they would be distinguished in battle. They would always be able to look to their leader because theirs was shaped differently than the rest of the men. You could spot them. The locals would know that's the centurion. Everyone knew when he was riding on his horse, that's the centurion. The crest was at a different angle than the rest of the troops. They wore that... Uh, Distinguished them. Their, their helmet was silver-plated, very distinguishable as well. They were also much higher paid than the Roman soldiers, much higher paid, with great responsibility. Jesus says, to much who much is given, much is required. They had higher responsibility, way higher pay. They received 17 to 20 times more pay than the soldiers, highly paid, but they had proven it. None of the soldiers looked at them and said, yeah, he's a paper soldier. Because these guys, had, they were the best of the best. They had proven it in battle. They had earned their stripes. We don't know the full measure of this centurion's rank. He's clearly a centurion. There's no such thing as an insignificant centurion. They all were highly respected and had worked to a great rank. But whether he was higher than... Uh, whether he was either a supreme or, or a senior centurion, we don't know. But what, uh, what we do know is from the account here that Luke tells us, he had built the Jews in Capernaum a synagogue. Whatever level of centurion he was, he would have had the combined financial means and he would have had enough men working for him to build a synagogue. He had the money, he had the authority, he had the manpower. This man had significant authority. He had status. He was accomplished career-wise. This is a, like many men's dream to hear these things about them, right? Status, accomplished, high level of authority. He had wealth. He had servants. He 
had many reporting to him. But yet, these aren't the things that actually define this man. And they aren't the things that should define any man that knows the Lord, by the way. These aren't the things that define him. His heart and what he believes is what defines him in this chapter. His heart and what he believes. All the backdrop stuff is important to know because it makes it all the more amazing to see his character and why Jesus would actually marvel at what he sees here. First and foremost, this man loved and agonized over his dying servant. Loved and agonized over his dying servant. Matthew 8 tells us, same story, Matthew records it as well. Remember in the different Gospels you'll find the same stories uh, and you'll get different viewpoints or different uh, angles of the same story. But Matthew gives us a little bit of information to say that the servant was dreadfully tormented. In other words, the servant was in excruciating pain. And the centurion was greatly empathetic towards that. The servant's intense pain and the thought of losing him made everything else secondary to the centurion at this moment in time. Everything else became secondary to him. You know, pain and sickness. Has anyone here ever experienced pain or sickness? Yeah, I, I would say everyone has at some point. Some of you are experiencing it this morning. Pain and sickness for us or others has a way of prioritizing what we really value, doesn't it? Boy, your priorities change immediately when you're feeling bad. At a certain point, you couldn't care less about the plans you had because you feel so miserable. And if you see someone else suffering, it, if you really love them, you have a hard time enjoying your own food when you know they're not enjoying theirs. You know what I mean? When you look on and see, man, my kid is uh, throwing up. It, it doesn't, you know, that, that great dinner we were planning just doesn't seem as exciting now. It just changes everything when you've seen someone else suffer. And this man, this centurion, he was having a hard time concentrating on anything else while he watched this dear servant who had been with him probably for some time suffer as he was. Now, under Roman law, Slaves and servants had very few rights. Slavery has been around since way back in the beginning, sadly. And Rome was no exception. Matter of fact, the Roman Empire was built on the backs of slaves from all over the world. Roman slaves were from every color uh, uh, of the skin tone, every part of the empire. Rome was an equal opportunity put you under slavery kind of empire. Whoever they conquered was, was a candidate to be a slave or a candidate for some other thing. They could put them into service, could put them into slavery. But the empire was built on the backs of slaves, and the Romans, the people that had high status, they weren't known for their kindness to slaves. That was not something that they were... It wasn't like, you know, if you ever become a slave in the Roman Empire, your masters will be really kind to you. That wasn't what they were known for. Despite how... We try and romanticize the Roman Empire with Pax Romana and things like that. It wasn't that romantic. If they became sick and they could no longer work, their masters could have them killed, and this was often what was expected because now they were costing you money instead of bringing money in. 
but not this centurion. Though he could have had this man killed, or done it himself, he wouldn't have. He would have had someone do it. Although he could have, he has a totally different response. See, he longed to see this servant healed, but he needed a miracle. He's very close to death. He needs a miracle. You know that this centurion had the money to have already brought the doctors in. Money wasn't a big deal for him. Bring the best of, best of the Roman doctors, best of the Jewish doctors, bring them all in. Can anyone help? Nothing we can do. We've done everything we can. Can anyone stop his pain? We've done everything we can. We've given him every herb we know of to stop the pain. Sour wine, this, that, the other. We've tried everything, every doctor. He's like, money's not an object. I've got plenty of money. I make 17 to 20 times more than my soldiers. Can anyone help? Nobody can help. See, money can't solve every problem, can it? Money can't solve any problem, actually, unless God allows it. He needs a miracle. But he heard about Jesus. Look, at the, look what it says. It says in verse 3, So when he heard about Jesus, not a commander of his rank, not a fellow leader of the elite, not a Roman commander, not even one of the leaders of the Jews, a carpenter, there is this one guy. He's a carpenter. He's actually from this area from Nazareth, also in Galilee, but he's on his way to Capernaum. Matter of fact, he's just, I believe he's just entered the city. He's actually, it's widely reported, he's healed a lot of people. Miracles. And he needs a miracle. Someone had obviously conveyed to him different things Jesus had already done. So what does he do? He calls, he calls and gathers the elders of the Jewish community there in Capernaum. He calls the elders together. Of course, he could command a meeting if he wants. He can tell the leaders to show up. He is the ranking military leader in the area under the charge of Herod Antipas probably and keeping order in the area. But he calls the leaders together and he asks the Jews, please go speak to Jesus on my behalf. I want you guys to go speak to him on my behalf. And they do it. But they don't just go and speak to Jesus. They plead passionately on the centurion's behalf. And it says when in verse 4, they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly. The Jewish leaders, some of which did not really believe in Jesus, as you know, most Jewish leaders did not believe in Jesus. And yet, at this moment, they're pleading on behalf of, not themselves, but the Roman centurion. Them pleading on his behalf is as unusual as his care for the servant. Both are highly unusual. See, the Jewish people, they loathed Rome. They couldn't stand Rome. Especially they didn't like Roman military. Would you like to be under martial law, any of you? Roman military was not something that they really had a liking to. They thought of the Gentiles in general as corrupt and impure. Ugh, Gentiles. Dirty. Impure. They're not of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember the pharisaical you know, kind of mindset is we're special. But it's obvious that they feel different about this centurion. 
they don't seem to feel the same way about him. What do they say? Well, they say in verse 5, he loves our nation. He loves, not likes our nation, he loves our nation. He's been put there and under, to, to maintain Roman control, but he loves our nation. The word here is agapeo. You're familiar with the word agape. But agapeo, Greek word, same as found in Luke 10, 27, and numerous other places in the, in the New Testament. But you know this passage from Luke. It's actually in the other Gospels as well. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, your soul, and all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love your neighbor there is agapeo. Not, not some cheap imitation love, not just eros, which is physical love, not just I kind of like. But this is a very sincere love that looks beyond one's self-interest. They recognize that his love for the nation is deep and sincere. He's built a synagogue for them. Now, Roman leaders, they would often provide the native peoples, in, in, in where, whether, whether they were leaders in Spain or whether they were leaders in uh, France, which is called Gaul, or all these different areas, no matter where they were at, they would often provide native people or with gifts, or they'd build them things, construction or recognition that would placate the people. We have this in Congress. It's called pork, right? Right? It, it is, I will do something nice for community. I can be as dishonest as the day is long, but if I do something nice for you, make sure that you continue to put me in office. And in Rome, it wasn't make sure you keep putting me in office, just don't cause me any trouble. I'll build you a circus, I'll build you this, I'll do something like, you want a synagogue, I'll build you a synagogue. And so they were used to the politically motivated tactics. But they clearly view this as genuine and not politically motivated. He loves our nation. The synagogue was built for good reasons. It was a genuine show of his love for them and his love for the Jewish community there. There was no ulterior motive in it, and everyone recognized it. Don't you and I want that reputation? Don't you want people to look at our lives and know that when we reach out to them, we don't want something from them. We want to present them with Jesus. We're not trying to get something out. I don't invite people to church because I want your tithes and offerings. No, we invite people because we want you to be set free. We want you to walk in peace. We want you to learn from the Lord. Take his yoke upon you. It's easy and his burden is light. All the other things that people carry around are bringing misery, anxiety, all types of other issues. We don't want to be known as having an ulterior motive. And this man, in this community, they recognized that what he was doing was sincere. It was genuine. We want to be genuine. Don't we hate when people are fake? And you know, you can tell when someone has an ulterior motive. They don't, you know, they don't think you can tell. Washington doesn't seem to think we can tell. 
when they have an ulterior motive. And, I, and I'm not, there's good, there's good men and women in Washington too. Just like there's good attorneys, believe it or not. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. If you're an attorney here, praise the Lord if you're, we, we need more good, we need more good in every category. I'm not, I'm only kidding. They're an easy target, you know. When I was in the business world, I had to work with our legal firm a lot, so I, I knew, but I would joke with them too. But we want to be known as genuine, don't we? No ulterior motive. That our reasons are in the best interest of the person, not looking out for ourselves. The centurion, his leadership approach was known to be sincere. It was known to be kind to those that were under his authority and those that were in the broader jurisdiction. He had built a legitimate bridge with the local Jewish community. You know, we're told in the scriptures not to be of the world, but we're still in the world. And it's good for you to build a bridge with your neighbors. I don't care if they ever come to church, if they ever, it's good for you to lend your rake with nothing, hoping nothing in return. It's good for you to show love and to show kindness because someday God will open a door when you least expect it because all the time you were doing it as under the Lord, that's when you get the opportunity to present Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen? It's good for us to build a bridge. It's good for us to have the right heart uh, if we're leading other people. Thomas Fuller, who was born in the 1600s, he said, if you command wisely, you'll be obeyed cheerfully. If you command wisely, you'll be obeyed cheerfully. I love Proverbs 11:17. It says, those who are kind benefit themselves, but the cruel bring ruin on themselves. Those who are kind benefit themselves, but the cruel bring ruin on themselves, either in this lifetime and definitely in the next. If you die as a cruel person, you certainly didn't know the Lord, and there'll be ruin then. It's very possible that this centurion, remember they had to be literate, it's very possible that he himself had read the Scriptures. He might have read Proverbs eleven seventeen. It might have struck him, oh, this word says if I'm kind as a ruler, it'll bring benefit. But if I'm cruel, as many of the other Roman rulers were, and most of them, in fact, I'll bring ruin on myself. We don't know uh, for certain. If you're familiar with Acts chapter 10, remember Peter is sent to a centurion, right, in Caesarea, and that centurion, it says, was a man who was devout and feared God. Remember, Peter also was a little bit put off because he did not want to go and touch this Gentile that barrier there. But once again, we see that God, you know, even when no one else is reaching the Gentiles, God's Spirit still reaches out, doesn't He? And something connects with this centurion and the centurion in Acts chapter 10. We don't believe they're the same centurions, because Luke records both, and Luke probably would have mentioned this is the centurion that I, that I mentioned prior. Two different centurions, one in Galilee, one over in Caesarea, although that's not that far apart. But God has somehow opened the eyes of this man for him to realize, these are my people. And he seems to be observing the things of the Lord. We don't know exactly whether he's ever read the scriptures or not, but he's showing a character that is higher 
than the Pharisees who supposedly knew the whole law. And they didn't act this way. Now notice that Jesus immediately, in verse 6, says, then Jesus went with them. Jesus immediately agrees. There's not even a question. Jesus says, where's the house? In other words, just starts moving. Actually, Jesus doesn't have to ask where the house. He actually knows where the house is. He could have told them the faster way to get there or whatever else you may. But basically, he just says, all right, I'm here to help. And he begins to go with them. He immediately agrees to go to the centurion's house. But this centurion, he shows both his humility and very likely his awareness that Jesus coming into his house would put Jesus in an awkward position. Or at least he could think that. You actually can't put Jesus in an awkward position. Perfect love casts out what? Fear. The only people who are in awkward positions are those that are still dominated by something in the flesh. And Jesus was never dominated by the flesh. You and I, we find ourselves in awkward positions because we're so far from perfect. And we still are dominated to some extent by our feelings and fear Jesus was not. But the centurion, it still is a great, gracious awareness on his part that this could be problematic for Jesus. So the combination of his humility and his awareness of the cultural norms, he says, don't even come into my house. I'm not worthy. He sends this through his emissaries. Not, I'm not worthy that you should enter this Gentile house. I'm not worthy as a man that I should even meet you. You're at a higher level. He already recognized that Jesus outranks him. I'm a man under authority, but I'm not worthy to even meet you. Uh, entering the Gentile house was completely against Jewish custom at this time. You did not, if you were a Jewish person, you didn't enter a Gentile house. That The neighbors would look at you more than sideways. That was really problematic. Now, it wasn't against the law of God. These were now the laws of men that the Pharisees and others had instituted and made it become the customs of the day. But Jesus... Uh, you know, I know that uh, you know, one, one uh, pastor was saying uh, about this text, I half wish Jesus would have gone all the way into the house just to see how the reaction would have been. But that's not what takes place. Uh, what does take place is he sends these uh, emissaries, and Jesus willingly is ready to come. But the man said, no, no, no. The centurion says, just say the word. And I know it'll be done. You simply say the word, Jesus, and I know it will be done. Acknowledging that Jesus had the authority over sickness in the same way that he had authority over his soldiers and over his servants and over the jurisdiction which he was given. Now before we look at Jesus' response, a couple of quick observations here. The centurion, he also teaches us a lesson on leadership here. It says in verse 8, for I also am a man placed under authority. Under authority. I've said it before and I'll say it again. You cannot be a great leader unless you're a great follower. You have to be a follower of Christ to be a disciple of men. You can't, be a disciple, you can't make disciples unless you are a disciple. But whether you're a father in your employment, whether you're serving 
leadership in the church, whether you oversee a ministry, you cannot be an effective and great leader unless people see that you're a person that puts yourself under submission of authority. I submit myself, I have to, to other men of God because they've gone before me, they know more than I do, they've earned it, they have served well, they've been given wisdom by their mistakes and <laughs> their successes, and all of us need to be submissive to those who God has placed in our lives. It's a good reason for it. A submissive spirit makes a great leader. This man says, I'm placed under authority, but I've also been given authority. It goes hand in hand. That's a good point to understand, but we also see that the centurion here and everyone else, again, if you're taking notes, he was convinced. Everyone was convinced the servant was near death. The Jewish leaders, they were convinced that this centurion was an honorable man. But the centurion, he was convinced of two things primarily. One, he was unworthy to meet Jesus. And two, Jesus was absolutely, unequivocally able to heal his servant. And that Jesus was the only solution possible. You know, the sickness of sin, Jesus is the only solution possible. You ever seen how many times people in Hollywood have gone to the Betty Ford Clinic? You'll hear, this is the ninth time to Palm Springs. Because methods can't heal anything. It takes the man Christ Jesus. He is the only solution. All the doctors had tried. Everyone, best in the best, uh, medical, that money could buy, all those things, none of those things, he was convinced it had to be the Lord. Matthew 19, 26 says, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus really is the Lord of the impossible, isn't he? And so we see what happens here, and Jesus heard, uh, Jesus hears that this man is not even wanting Jesus to come to his house. He's saying, don't even come. I'm not worthy, but I know if you simply say the word, I have authority, I'm under authority, but I know, Lord Jesus, that you have the authority to simply say it. You don't have to touch him. You don't have to see the servant. Of course, Jesus can see. You know, here's the thing about Jesus. He sees the servant in his, Jesus can see the servant exactly what he looks like, exactly the pain he's in. He doesn't have to go into the house. He knows what the inside walls of the house look like. He knows which door frame he'd walk through. He sees the entire area, and he says, you're right. I don't need to go. And what does he say? I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. <clears throat> that very hour, Matthew's gospel tells us, that very hour, the servant is completely healed. Can you imagine someone that you've been praying for for a long, long time, and we have folks like that. You know, we have Paula we've been praying for for a long, long time uh, in this church, and she's still a walking miracle. Uh, but when someone of something that you know every doctor can't do anything more than what they've already done, and someone's in intense pain, and immediately they're completely healed, that's going to get a lot of people's attention, isn't it? But this centurion... 
he already, be, he already believed Jesus could do this. And Jesus acknowledges this faith. Let's look at commended. If you're taking notes. I have not seen such great faith, not even in Israel. We're told that here in verse 9 that Jesus marveled. Now, Jesus does not marvel at any person in the sense that no one impresses the Lord. But in comparison to everyone else, remember, the centurion was raised under a pagan culture. The centurion was not born into a Jewish family teaching him the Tanakh. He was not given all of the heritage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't even appear to have known that much about Jesus, but the little bit of information he got, he latched onto it with 100% says, I believe in this man. That little bit. And Jesus marvels, because remember, Jesus marveled in Mark 6, 6, it says Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. These were people who saw his power, his goodness, his kindness, and they still folded their arms and said, I don't believe in him. This man who had seen next to nothing, had been given the stories of Jesus, says, I believe he can do it. I believe he actually has the authority. I believe it so much. Because, you know, if you really, really thought Jesus was the real deal, I don't know about you, but I would have wanted him to come into the house. Wouldn't you? I would have wanted... I mean, if, if, if I think the doctor that I've told is the very best doctor, I actually want to meet them face to face, not say, well, he'll send you an email of what you should do. But this man believed that Jesus really could do anything with just his spoken word. And Jesus marveled that this man, without all of the background, sometimes his own disciples. Remember he said to Peter in Matthew 14, 31, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? But this man believed that Jesus indeed was the healer. Had all the power of the universe in his hands. I love what Jesus said. This man had not seen Jesus we don't know what he had seen, but he was told of Jesus' miracles. I love what Jesus said when he spoke to Thomas in John 20, 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Isn't that great? That should, that should strengthen our faith. I've never seen Jesus personally, physically. I've seen him as work in my life. I've seen him transform my life. I've seen him transform many of your lives. But I've not seen, I've not touched his nail-pierced hands yet. Remember Thomas, like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta feel the side, I gotta see the nail prints. Centurion didn't need to see those things. He's like, I'm desperate. He's the only hope anyway. I believe he can do it. I'm not worthy to see him. I don't want him to enter the house and cause trouble for you guys or for him. He says the word, it's done. And Jesus marvels at that to say, Wow, I only wish that the rest of you would believe with what you've been given because many of them have been given far more of Jesus' testimony already. They had heard him teach. They had seen his miracles. And many of them were still not willing. 
to believe. You know, D.L. Moody said, the Bible was not given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. It wasn't given to increase our knowledge. Jesus didn't do these things to just make people smarter, more knowledgeable about the Scriptures. He came to transform lives. And the centurion, what he believed about Jesus wasn't informational, it was transformational, and his servant was the great beneficiary of it, wasn't it? You know, when you and I have great faith, it not only will help us, but it will actually save our families. Remember what Paul told the Philippian jailer? You'll save you and your whole household. You and your whole household, when you exercise faith, I've said this before, statistically, when the father comes to Christ first, almost the whole family will follow. When anyone else in the family comes first, not near as many follow. A very low percentage will actually follow if it's just mom or one of the sisters or one of the brothers. But the Lord honors this kind of faith. We need this kind of faith, don't we? Romans 15, 13, I love this verse. I, you guys know this. No, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot abound in hope. You cannot abound in peace. You cannot abound in power outside of believing. And a lot of times you won't feel like believing. Matter of fact, I would say many times you won't feel like believing. But you do it anyway because you know there is no other power other than God. There is no other solution other than believing in the Lord. There is no other way through the problem that you might have. There's not a, you can't try a different route. They will all fail, but if you believe in what the Lord has said, you will experience. All of a sudden, even before your problem is gone, you'll start to have peace. You'll start to believe in God's power over it. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. You have to have faith. You have to believe that, Lord, doing these things, getting up, reading your word, spending some time in prayer, even if it's only a few minutes, it's better than zero. Trust me, far better. Reading his word, being here this morning as you are, getting together with other believers, all of these things are actually instruments of faith. They, they are saying, Lord, I believe that doing these things is profitable and brings glory to you, and you're honored by it. And it's in those times that we obey the Lord that we see the Lord do breakthroughs in our lives. Amen? I don't know about you, but I have a lot of things I want breakthroughs in. And they'll only come by me believing and staying steadfast and continuing to say, Lord, uh, I only got a mustard seed on this one, but I'm going to believe it anyway. And I'm going to follow it and continue doing what you've asked. You know, someday we'll all stand before the Lord and we'll all either receive his commendation or not. I love in Matthew 25, 21, and he said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. Not even a lot of things. Isn't it good that God has not given you some you know, 8,000-point checklist to follow? Here's your 400-page plan. Follow it to the letter. He said it all hangs on two. Love me and love your neighbors. And by the way, 
Spend time with me and the Holy Spirit will help you do those two. You get it more complicated than that, and then things start to fall apart. The centurion, he was faithful to say, I believe a couple of things. I believe I am unworthy. I believe he can do it. That's pretty powerful. And he just hung on to that. And Jesus said, you're going to see that little bit, that little short list that you believe I'm going to do, the amazing. And it tells us here that all throughout the area, people were amazed. Let's look at this last area, compassionate. We have a second miracle here that you could argue is even greater than the first one. We know a lot less about the woman because there's not a specific title or anything given to her. The centurion, we don't know, we didn't know so much about him personally, but we know enough about Roman centurions that we can ascertain some things about his position in the area. But this woman of Nain, if you're taking notes, Josephus tells us that Nain was on the way from Galilee to Jerusalem if you were going on the westerly route anyway, that you could travel down. It would be uh, in lower Galilee there. Nain, a small town on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus probably walking towards Judah. And I think it's important to note here as we look at this situation, the number one thing that stands out is Jesus here, he's not, called upon by anybody to come and do something. There's, this, is, this is actually a contrast with the other one. There's not a group of people saying, hey, we need your help. We need, you're the only one that can do this. We need your help. Aren't you glad that in many, many, many places around the world, Jesus is stepping in where no one else has? There's parts of the world where the gospel hasn't even gotten there yet, which is the fault of us as the church, ultimately. We, we, are the, we are the reason that the gospel isn't in every part, of every language hasn't been translated. But yet Jesus is faithfully, you know, he's coming to some Hindus and Muslims in dreams, speaking directly to them. Some are getting saved before anyone else even arrives on the scene. Like, how did you even, where did you find a Bible? I don't have one. Where did you find about the scriptures? Didn't. How did you come to believe in Jesus? He, I didn't. He came to me. There are places around the world that this is happening and it continues to happen. And praise the Lord, even in our unfaithfulness, the scripture says, though we are faithless, he remains faithful. This town of Dane, the whole town is in mourning. No one's asked Jesus to come. They don't even know He's on his way. We don't get that from the text. Maybe someone knew. But all we see is that the day after, he went into a city. And he came near the gate. There was a dead man being carried out. Now, one of the cool things about Jesus is he has this habit. This happens a number of times in ministry. He loves to disrupt funeral parties. He is the only man to ever walk the earth that can walk into a funeral party and completely flip it upside down. And he does it on a couple of occasions. This isn't the only time. Remember Lazarus? They were weeping and mourning over, over him. It was, and they don't just mourn for like 
an hour or two at the funeral parlor, this would go on for days if there was sadness over someone's death. But Jesus has this habit of coming in and totally saying, what's going on here? Why are you weeping? And he knows why they're weeping. He knows why this woman is weeping. But why does he come? Well, it says here, verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion. No one invited him. Wasn't told to come. No one was pleading, you've got to get here. And even if they thought that Jesus could help, it was too late anyway. But Jesus shows up. And I think the first thing you and I need to uh, remember is we're to be like our master. A follower of Christ must have compassion. Amen? You and I have to have compassion. You know, we just, uh, a couple Sundays in a row, we, uh, or Sundays we did Compassion International, Compassion for Children. And I think about the fact that the Lord has given us so many opportunities to show the compassion of Christ. Are we doing it? We'll be, some of us will be tonight uh, in Bonaire reaching out to kids that are in prison. Many of them have never heard the gospel in their own families. Some have, but some, almost all of them, from single-parent homes, and though many people don't think about them, Jesus does. And not just them, but you know, whether it's single moms or battered women or uh, those that are poor around the world, but the end, of the, the end of the day, Jesus cares more about anything else is that they meet him personally. Because we're not taking any of our wealth with us, our job with us, our status, any of that stuff, but everyone needs the Lord, and Jesus has compassion on not only this woman, but we know in his ministry he would have compassion on the multitudes. But he also sees the individual. And he walks up, he walks up to the coffin. It's an open coffin being carried out. And he sees the woman. She's a widow. And Jesus doesn't need anyone to tell him that either. Can you give me some background on this lady? Can someone tell me, who is, who's the mother? That he knows. We've probably been invisible even to you or I, who was in the most grief. And Jesus knows she's a widow. And he already knows every fear she has in her mind. She is in great distress, sadness, but equally she also probably is thinking about what does the future hold for me now? Who's going to take care of me? After the, after the remorse has kind of faded, you know, for a while everyone's with you. But after a while, they kind of return to their own lives. Everybody gets back to normal. And they forget about the woman that lost her husband and her son. And she eventually thinks, this will fade. They won't always mourn with me. Eventually, they'll move on to their grandkids, and they'll be doing this, they'll be doing that, and I'll be left alone. But Jesus walks up to her. And he says to her, personally to her, do not weep. That's an amazing statement. Amazing. Jesus, he had compassion on individuals. You know, he was acquainted with sorrows. You know that, right? He was a man acquainted with sorrows. He understood the grief that people would go through. Alan Redpath wrote this about Nehemiah. He said, you never lighten the load unless you have felt the pressure in your own soul. And you are never used of God to bring blessing until God has opened your eyes and made you see things the way they are. But Nehemiah, 
If you remember the compassion he had for his city that was in ruins, he first wept before the Lord in prayer. And then he was used by God to go out and do something about it. Because Jesus spent so much time with the Father in prayer, he was always compassionate, and the Father was always sending him directly to where he could do something about it. Directly to a problem, directly to a need. He had great compassion, but the Lord would send him right to the place. And you and I, we're called to be repairers of the breach. We're called to be ministers of reconciliation. We're called to be instruments of God's grace and healing. You know, you and I, we can't actually soothe anyone's pain and sorrow, can we? If you've ever sat with people that are grieving, and as a pastor, I've done it numerous times, I truly many times have no idea what to say. And I'm not just saying, I truly have no idea what to say, because you can't really soothe anyone's pain, but Jesus can. It's why it's so important that we walk not in the power of our flesh, but in the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit will give the word. He'll anoint words that you're like, where did that come from? And you don't take credit for it. You know it's the Lord. If he soothes anyone at all, it's him, not us. We must be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to bring Christ into places where he's told us to go and have compassion. And it's his strength, not our own. He brings the help. He brings the comfort. He brings the word. It's why I love to bring a Bible with me where I go where people need, because I know when I know nothing to say, if I read a simple passage of Scripture, God speaks. And he knows what to say. The Lord will flow through us supernaturally. He'll bring death to life. And he'll bring pain, uh, or bring, he'll bring life to death, and he'll bring from pain people into peace. He alone can do that. He alone does that. A lot of people, they look on, even believers, and they look on and they, they just don't have any compassion for situations. They're like, well, that's, that's kind of sad, but someone else will take care of it. I don't have time for it anyway. I've got busier. I've got more important things to do. But you know, when you actually spend time with the Lord, and I spend time with the Lord, He really does change our perspective. We'll care more. We'll actually walk as He walked. We'll look at people and want to put an arm around them and say, don't weep. I know who has the answer here. There was a businessman and his wife, and they were busy to the point of exhaustion, they were committed to each other, they were committed to their family, they were committed to their church, they were committed to their work, they were committed to their friends. But needing a break, they escaped for a few days of relaxation at an oceanfront hotel. And one night a violent storm lashed the beach and it sent massive breakers thundering against the shore. The man lay in his bed and thinking about his own life and thought all night about his never-ending demands and pressures. The wind finally died down, and shortly before daybreak, the man slipped out of bed and took a long walk on the beach to see what damage had taken place during the night. As he strolled, he saw that the beach was covered with starfish that had been thrown ashore and helplessly stranded by powerful waves. Once the morning sun would burn through the clouds, the starfish would all dry out and die. Suddenly, the man saw an interesting sight, a young boy had also noticed the plight of the starfish. And he was picking them up one at a time 
and flinging them back into the ocean. The businessman says, what are you doing and why are you doing that? As the man asked the boy as he got close enough to be heard, he goes, can't you see that one person will never make a difference? You'll never be able to get all those starfish back into the water. There's too many of them. Yes, that's true, the boy said, as he bent over and picked up another one and tossed it back in the water. Then as he watched the saint, he looked at the man and smiled and said, but it sure made a difference to that one. And it's true, you and I can look at all the people we need to help, and it became so daunting that some people do nothing. I remember K.P. Hannon talking about when he was first called to reach India with the gospel, and he's riding on a train, and he, all he sees is a sea of people everywhere he goes, and India has 1.2 billion people, and he's like, Lord, this is too much. How in the world can it ever be done? And he said that the Holy Spirit just spoke in his heart, one person at a time. And that's why Jesus comes to one woman. You're not responsible. I'm not responsible for every single person on the planet. Let me tell you, we are responsible to have compassion on the ones that God puts in our path. And if we ignore them like the Samaritan was laying, you know, laying there on the side of the road and say, I don't have time to mess with this. If we don't have compassion on others, and yet we want God's compassion on us. Can't you see the problem? The Lord has compassion. He wants us to... This is in the Scriptures not just because it's an incredible miracle. And it is an incredible miracle. Jesus blows the doors off of what everyone thought. He does turn the funeral procession upside down. He does the impossible. He says to the man in the coffin, young man, I say to you, arise... Who else can talk to a dead body and tell it to get up? Only Jesus. We leave so much power in our back pocket, in our Bibles, or back at home, don't we? Because really, Jesus is the same one that's calling dead people to life every day since we've been here. People around the world have just received Christ while we've been sitting here. And they are as dead spiritually as any person's ever been dead physically. Completely dead. Completely dead. And yet Jesus calls them from death into life. But he wants us to have his vision. He wants us to see that really the whole world is one gigantic funeral procession. That's what he wants us to see. He wants us to see that the whole world is actually on their way to a funeral. And they all are actually in the coffins, if you will, and he says, are you going to care? I've said before that D.L. Moody, when he asked another pastor there in London to look out over the city, he goes, what do you see? He goes, I see people shopping. I see people going here and there. I see people at the park. And D.L. Moody said, that's your problem. I see people going to hell. He had compassion on the multitudes differently than other people because you only think like the Lord when you spend time with the Lord. I don't know about you. I want more compassion for people who are dying. Don't you? I want more compassion for people that are on their way to hell and they don't know it. I want more compassion for those who are suffering. Pastor Raul Reese um, spoke at the pastor's conference and, he, and uh, recently he's been starting to have seizures. And he said that he 
never really had them before, but he started getting them, and he said the Lord just kind of spoke in his spirit that he started to receive them because he had not for a long time had much compassion for people who were sick. And he said, my vision on that has changed 180. He goes, I have a new heart for people who are sick and infirmed. The Lord wants us to have his compassion. Jesus wasn't sick. Jesus wasn't dying. He would actually choose to die, but he actually had compassion for the dying, the sick, the infirmed, the blind, and he wants us to follow in his footsteps. I want to have more of his compassion. When we spend time with him, when we see things through his eyes, you'll not, as I close, and we're, and we're done here, but I want you to understand something. <laughs> you will never be able, nor will I, to make yourself care more. You cannot make yourself care more. There's things you'll naturally care for, like your kids and your husband, or your wife. I hope you care about those things. But the rest of it, you will not have an easy time making yourself care. Here's the only way it happens. In the sixth chapter, remember before Jesus spoke, it said he spent all night in prayer with the Father. When you spend time with the Lord, he places the care in you. Does that make sense? You cannot make yourself, I'm going to care, I'm going to be compassionate. Now I pray, Lord, make me compassionate. And then he says, all right, now go do this, walk in it in obedience, and I'll place the compassion in you. The more you walk in obedience, the more compassion you'll have. The more you pray for compassion, the more you'll walk in obedience. The more you walk in obedience, the more you'll have compassion. The more you exercise compassion, the more compassion will come. Do you see? But it all starts at sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus. Amen? You cannot make yourself, I cannot make myself care more. But when I don't care, when I find myself dry and just, eh, all I want to do is watch football. All I want to do is do this. All I want to do, I have to spend time with the Lord. And by the way, he then drops all that stuff off. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, wow, there's a funeral procession outside. I thought it was a carnival. Right? The Lord will give us that compassion. He'll give us that care. And the Lord wants us to be his intercessors, to go on behalf of people, speak on behalf of them, and bring them the Lord of the impossible. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time in, this, in your word this morning. Lord, we ask that you would just fill us, Lord, with the faith that we see in the centurion here. Fill us with the compassion that you had. Lord, we know that even our faith in its largest form is the size of a mustard seed. But Lord, we know that if we would act upon that which you've given us, the same saving faith that brought salvation, Lord, by your grace and by your mercy, you'll transform us. We'll have more compassion. We'll have more faith to believe in impossible situations, to know that you can do what seems impossible. You can heal. You can change a job situation. You can bring about finances, uh, whatever it may be, Lord, whatever the hurdles that are in this room, whatever the insurmountable walls or, or trials, Lord, we know that you are bigger and greater than them all. For you truly 
have told us what is impossible with men is possible with you. And Lord, we just thank you and praise you, Lord, that uh, we don't worship a God who's limited, not limited in problems, but also not limited in changing us. And we ask, Lord, that you would transform us into your very image, Lord, that we would not miss those opportunities to reach out and to present you to a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.